0: I'm here today with Asante Lawler, who is an inventor, corrective exercise specialist and a martial artist who is currently working on an edge alignment device to help people learn to cut better. So, without further ado, Asante, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you. Um, Just so we can orient everybody, whereabouts are you? I'm in London, UK. Okay. Uh, Any
1: particular bit of London? Oh, okay. I I live in Bromley at the moment, but I'm actually moving back to the outskirts of Gravesend, which is just out of London. But yeah, I'm in Bromley.
0: Okay. So, uh, I mean, London is huge and it's a, basically a giant collection of villages. Yeah. Um, so how long is it going to take you to get from Gravesend into the central London? Oh, um, probably only about
1: 40 minutes to an hour. Less uh, than okay. that train. Um, that's, that's pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, even going across London by public transport, you can usually get anywhere within inside an hour it's driving. That's the problem because of the traffic most of the time.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause I find, you know, I live in Ipswich and I can get into Liverpool street in about an hour on the train. Yeah. And then I can get anywhere else in about the next half an hour or so. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's property prices are a lot better in Ipswich than they are in, <laughs> yeah, this is in the, the only of London.
1: This is the only thing. I mean, everyone tells you to move out of London, to, you know, for a bit of house prices and the rest of it. And then you realize that, um, if you're still within that sort of London catchment sort of area, buses are insane. So, you know, you really have to go quite far out before it starts making a difference.
0: Indeed. Uh, So hopefully your new invention will make you so much money. You can live wherever you want. That'd be great. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're going to get onto that in a little bit, but um, I thought I'd ask you first, what is a corrective exercise specialist? What do you do?
1: So it's a personal trainer that focuses on postural uh, misalignments and ailments and how to correct those using some sort of strategy to try and avoid or even, what's the word, um, repair like people's injuries. So if you've got bad knees, bad hips, bad backs, a lot of the time it's not because of any particular injury. It might be because your posture is causing that and that you may have forward head carriage, which is putting pressure on your lower spine, which is causing certain muscles to um, essentially be underactive where they should be doing a certain job. They're not doing it anymore. And the strategy is how do we turn those muscles back on? How do we make sure your posture is corrected so you don't have those injuries anymore and you don't cause further injuries by um, leaning more and more into those uh, fundamental misalignments in your posture, essentially. So
0: it's we, a little bit little bit like a physiotherapist?
1: Um, no, so a physiotherapist would be, they'd give you specific stretches and they'd look at stuff more in depth in, like, in terms of physio... Uh, therapy essentially like manipulation mm-hmm. and stuff like that whereas us it's more you know you need to work on building strength in your hex and stretching out your lat, uh, lats or yeah anything like that it's more it's more general whereas a physio is going to look at manipulations we're going to say here's like a general plan that you need to stick to to fix this postural um,
0: problem you have okay so if there was say Two or three exercises you think everybody should be doing, what would they be?
1: Probably squats, um, just because Mm -hmm. they tend to find all of the different problems you have. If your knees cave in, if your feet go flat, if you put too much strain on your lower back or upper back, you'll find out very quickly if you start doing squats. Um, Push-ups, just because they're great for um, practicing getting your shoulders set in the right position, because a lot of people, especially today because you're sitting around computers and using phones, You tend to have your shoulders rolled forwards and your neck down, whereas if you practice push-ups quite often, you'll generally you know, gravitate towards better shoulder position because it's just going to force you to have those shoulders back. And lastly, probably some sort of breathing exercise, to be honest. I'd say a lot of people don't really focus much on um, how your breath affects your posture and how it affects your state of
0: mind. I'm very glad you said that. (laughs) <laughs> i've I've been banging the breathing drum for like 25 years now and yeah you know, i've produced an online course for breathing for martial artists and and you know it's, it's been like the core of my practice since forever but most people doing historical martial arts at least don't have any kind of a breathing practice yeah it's
1: unfortunate because it does make a huge difference in terms of um Especially posture, because uh, if you breathe from your upper chest, for example, when you get tired and you start flexing your sort of mid-spine, especially if you if you do like historical martial arts and you wear armor or anything like that, you're going to notice how much of a difference that makes to your stamina and just pain in your body. Whereas if you learn to breathe more from your abdomen, at least, but there's better ways of breathing, breathing all around, it's just going to make a massive difference to your stamina and just how comfortable you feel
0: generally. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, of of yeah, just, just getting your breathing under control and breathing more efficiently yeah. is just is this massive boost to aerobic performance just because you're getting more air for less effort.
1: Yeah, yeah, that as well. Yeah, pretty much. The one that people tend to overlook, though, is how much sort of intra-abdominal pressure and how you breathe affects that in that. Yes you can have like a lot of uh, oxygen intake and you get a lot more energy because you're breathing well but if you're breathing in a way that is uh, just not efficient or it's putting a lot mm-hmm. of strain on your back or anything like that you can be losing out on quite a bit of um, energy because you're having to compensate because you're constantly altering your you know your body's equilibrium if you like so you're always having to right. tighten and micromanage all these muscles that's just slowly burning away whereas if you do any kind of meditation or well, like real meditation sort of practice where they teach you how to sit and breathe and all that kind of stuff yeah it just massively helps getting you to sort of um getting you into like really good movement patterns really good posture
0: generally yeah i i I, I think we are of one mind on this but i think what we ought to do is get together into in the same like physical place and go over some breathing stuff because i think that would be really interesting it's Uh, I'm, i'm coming at it From a sort of martial arts perspective, like I was, most of the ex breathing exercises I've been taught, I've got from martial arts instructors of various kinds. Mm. Um, but I've also developed a whole load myself because I used to play the trumpet, which gives you a a particular kind of approach to breathing, like a very long exhale. Yeah. For instance. Um, and I've been doing things like Wim Hof breathing. Which is, okay, uh, yeah, it's a famous one. Yeah, and, and that's, that's based on some, I think it's called Tummo meditation. From Nepal. Yeah, it's
1: the way, where you heat your body. I think it's from yeah.
0: Nepal
1: or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, I,
0: th- I think it's Nepal. Yeah. Um, Nepal? so what, what, what does your physical practice look like? Um, my own training or like my yeah. martial arts that
1: I do? Uh, but, your own training. So my own training, we, I do a system of yoga. So it's called Sanjum Kiriya Varyam. And it's essentially a bunch of exercises that teach you how to move efficiently that really work well with um the corrective exercise stuff I done. So it's really just squats, push-ups, and sit-ups, but you do them in specific ways to stretch your back and ensure you're not overloading the knees and it's really, really lines up with corrective exercise, but it's just there's an element of um breathing and stretching and how do you use that in combat. So where you stand, the way you sit, the way you squat how does that apply to combat specifically? How do you make sure your spine isn't going to be uh, taken advantage of because you're leaning too far forward, or so you're not leaning back enough and all this kind of stuff. So it's just really basic, I've never. I mean, yeah. <laughs>
0: I've, I've never heard of that particular kind of yoga. So would you send me a link and I'll put it in the show notes so that people can look it up and get an example? Yeah, yeah sure. I'll try and find something. I'm, I think there's something on our... our class
1: website about San Kiri I don't know how deep it is but um, yeah it's essentially yoga just
0: with a more fighting focused uh, yeah we don't normally associate yoga with like hitting people I know it's kind of the opposite (laughs) but
1: you also have you have like the archer pose you have the warrior pose you have like so many images of like Indian gods and goddesses doing postures that you see in yoga but they're doing it in a fighting sense so it's almost like that element it's there uh, in things like Kali uh, Kali, I think you have to say it now. A lot of people just call it Kali, but uh, yeah, it's there, it's just not as practiced in the West, because in the West we think of yoga as mainly just for um, you know relaxation and just general mental health and body health and the rest of it.
0: Okay, hey, So, what sort of martial arts do you do? Uh, I do Shasta
1: Vidya, which is an Indian uh, battlefield martial arts, so it's a historic martial art. Swords, spears, shields, all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. it's... Um, Yeah. It's really focused on like the battlefield context, which makes it super interesting. If you're, if you've come from like a dueling background, whether it be like boxing or fencing or something like that, Mm -hmm. this is more like, okay, we're going to be fighting in groups. We can't step back. There's certain sort of priorities. So for example, in boxing, your main priority was hitting the guy because you can either win by scoring as many hits as you like, or you can win by um, knocking the guy out in battlefield combat. Scoring a hit is great. Um, if it gives you an advantage and if it pushes the opponents back, but if you scored a hit but it didn't really do anything because you remember people wear armor and Mm -hmm. people don't die instantly, then you're better off doing something that um, gives you some sort of tactical advantage than pushing someone back or getting getting ground or moving in a way that just forces people into certain corners so your your teammates essentially can help you out. So it's just a very different approach. And obviously with this war, there's a lot of health benefits. It's like, There's a lot of things you can't afford to do because you're not fighting for five minutes or, you know, five minutes every few months. It's like you should be expected to fight every day for several weeks, which means we tend to line up in terms of body mechanics. We line up more with people like, um, I don't know, people that work fields, people that use, you know, sledgehammers and things like that. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's just a very different way of looking at combat coming from a boxing sort of perspective where I came from. So where did you come across this art? Um, I think I actually saw it in the paper. either in the paper, it was on the TV. And at the time, I was doing Wing Chun. I'd been doing Wing Chun for about five years. And previously, I'd done boxing and Thai and a little bit of kickboxing just, you know, through my youth. And, um, I don't know, you get to a certain stage and a lot of art starts seeming quite similar. Not exactly yeah. similar, but, like, the concepts keep coming up. And I just thought I wanted to try something different. I saw it pop up. Uh, I went to this seminar and, um yeah, just the stuff he showed me. Uh, the movements themselves were pretty simple, but the concept behind the movements, I was like, ah, that makes so much sense. I'd never really thought of combat in that way before. So stuff like, um, like reflexes, they say in battlefield combat, any sort of uh, technique or approach to combat that relies heavily on reflexes or sight in general isn't um, favorable because on a battlefield, you can't really see a, a, an attack coming or you can't pick out an individual attack when there's multiple t- Yeah, particularly if you're in armor. Yeah, particularly if you're in armor. So it's more like, how do I control the, the space of combat using timing? And that if I'm approaching at this speed and I think he's approaching at that speed, there's going to be a window for opportunity, a window of opportunity, sorry, for attack. And how do I make sure I've got the highest chance of surviving that t- attack? I mean, you can always say, oh, if I've got, like, the best skills in the world, I'll survive any attack. I'll just practice it a million times. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. (laughs) You You do get that. People go, you know, but if you just practice it a lot, I'm like, yeah, you can practice every technique a lot. And there are people that can pull off pretty much any technique out there. But if you said, you know, statistically, how many people will pull that off based on how many openings you have and how much, you know, margin there is for error it kind of changes. And then Shasta Video kind of goes on the extreme opposite end where it says, okay, we want to keep skill is there and we want to have skill, but we don't really want to rely on skill. Skill is something that saves you if you're in a pinch or allows you to, to uh, carry out more complicated or more risky strategies. But generally you go, you go on the side of strategy and you say, is there some sort of uh, formation I can take or some sort of timing thing that I can use to make my chances of survival increase massively? in an unknown, in that I don't know him, he doesn't know me and we're just going to run at each other and one of us is going to die kind of thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So, uh, so yeah, it's just really interesting. So where, where does this come from? It comes from India. Well, yeah, it is a big place, which, which, uh Period.
1: So, um, oh, you're going to be testing my knowledge now. Um, yeah. So no. it's, it's actually ancient. So it, they say it like dates back, uh, well, in the, the art history, at least it dates back at least a few thousand years. But the one that, the uh, Arkada, essentially, our school, um, is from the 18th century, from northern India and um, the Punjab area. So it's like the Sikhs were the, um, what do you call them, custodians, I guess, of our, but it, did, it does predate the Sikhs. So it was taught by the Rajputs and the Nagas and various kingdoms before that, apparently.
0: Okay, is it related to Gatka?
1: No, so Gatka is like completely the opposite.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, because Gatka is like the Sikh dueling art.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's like a dueling stroke, uh, what would you call it? Exhibition kind of thing. So there's loads mm-hmm. of twirling and clashing of blades and, you know, really cool to watch. But it's just, you know, it's just very different. It's like a different approach
0: to combat entirely. Okay. But if people like think of Sikh martial arts, Gathka is going to be the one they think of first, almost certainly. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. This one's fairly yeah. unknown, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately. I don't know. But, um,
1: yeah, Gatka is, the ones that most people associate with Sikhs, but as you say, India is a big place and there were yeah. a lot of Sikhs and one of the arts was Shastavidya. And Gatka, I think, apparently was um, practiced also in parts of Afghanistan and stuff like that, or at least like similar sort of fighting styles mm-hmm. or sticks. And then some of it crossed over into India um, and became, you know, associated with Sikhs.
0: Okay, so why do you think the battlefield arts survived like a full century after rifles and tanks and planes and things made all that kind of thing obsolete um it's hard to say really because
1: they didn't really survive even in india i think there are only mm. a few practitioners of the art and battlefield arts in general just traditional arts across the world have pretty much died out but i yeah. think the reason why they might have stuck around in india like shastavidya itself is india's got like a ton of weapons just culturally they've got like the whole warrior cast thing um dating back thousands of years and i think that has helped to keep the culture alive at least and some of the knowledge in the same way that yoga is alive because it's linked to the culture it's linked to the religion so you know it's just harder for it to die out i guess and a lot of people want to um, train it because of those reasons from a practical perspective i just think it's super you know in depth they really go into like how do you do things specifically and why do you do them and in more depth than
0: I've done in other arts, at least in like uh, boxing and, and Thai and stuff like that. Right, it's, honestly, it's really unusual that I speak to someone who practices a martial art I have never heard of. That's really yeah. unusual. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I need to, I need to get myself over to Gravesend and we, and, we, and you can show me this stuff because I, I actually want to see it. Yeah, you do. it sounds I, fascinating.
1: Even even if you just look at it from a uh, I don't know scholar scholarly sort of. lens and you don't even want to practice it it's very interesting you're like "Ah, i can totally see
0: why they've done this and why they've developed these weapons and why they move that way so Uh, i'm also really curious about how it has survived because like the historical martial arts i practice have survived because while the art itself died out somebody wrote it down in a book and the book itself has survived and we find the so so we know that for example in 1400 in Italy, this is how at least some people were doing knightly combat. Because in 1400 in Italy, an Italian trainer of knights wrote it all down, right? Illustrations yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything. So, so we can date it precisely, and fit it in with everything else we know about the period, and you know, so we have like this window into the past through the book, right? Yeah. But where we have um, martial arts that survive through master student training um transfer, then every generation changes it slightly yeah. or even changes yeah. it quite a lot. Right? Yeah. And so there's it's it's fascinating for me to see um I am I'm imagining that this art has been taught from um teacher to student. Yes. Yeah, so right. It's, um, but it's there's better. going to be historical records of it being used 200 years ago, 300 years ago, or whatever. And it'd be fascinating to compare how the modern practice matches up with what was being written about it 200 years ago, 400 years ago, or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that
0: would be fascinating. That would be interesting.
1: And I found even in my own sort of, you know, reading about different martial arts, a person's perspective also can change um, people's understanding quite a lot. In that I could sure. show... I could show like one movement and it looks identical to someone else doing it. But the way it's applied is so different. And the mentality behind it, how it's applied, can change the entire sort of flow of combat, if you like. uh, I think think the easiest way to explain it was um, we've got like a kind of boxing kind of style in Shasta Video, which is, um, you know, it's essentially like boxing. You punch and you kick and whatever. And one time I'm swine with my teacher and he said, the difference between me and you is like, you're really just trying to hit me. Whereas I'm trying to grab, I'm trying to get into a position where I can grab your head and try and break it or something. And my main, ta- your main target is my face. My main target is the back of your neck. So ah. it really changes. So even though the movements can look similar enough to like a, yeah. you know, someone that hasn't got a trained eye, um, just the way he was approaching me was completely different to how any other fighter approached me. Cause I was like, I'm not used to people trying to target the back of my head because in boxing, Muay Thai and pretty much every other sport, you're not allowed to and Right, occur to, you. <laughs> it occur to you after years of doing it that way. So, um, yeah, there's that, that element as well. I find, um, changes things quite a bit.
0: Well, yeah, it would. Um, and like where you have rule sets that, that say, well, you can't hit the back of the head, for instance, which makes sense. I mean, people would die if you hit the back of the head. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure And if you're trying to make a sporting contest, you, I mean, like the classic example is, um, sport, sporting wrestling systems, um, pin people on their back. Like judo, for example, you win by pinning somebody on their back. But the thing is, if you're actually like trying to take down an armed assailant, you need to get them on their front because if they're on their back, they still have four weapons available at least. Yes, yes. Both, both feet, both hands. But if you put them on their front, they call not they
1: yeah, yeah. right? I actually, I actually went to a Budo, um, I forget the name of the art, but it was a seminar on this kind of stuff and it was a, a system taught to police. So it was, right. I guess it was a bit of jujitsu and judo. I don't know its exact roots, but um, it's like immediately changed my understanding of judo. Because I used to think of right. judo, I used to think, yeah, throw people in their back, pin them or whatever. And I was like, you know, it's cool, but you know, why and it's going to end up in a grapple like a BJJ some type of situation? Where this guy was like, no, here's some original techniques. Where it's like, no, we're going to land them on their head. And we're always going to try and land them on their front. So they of yeah. uh, exactly as you say, so they don't have, uh, have access to weapons. And suddenly I was like, oh, that's so efficient. Why didn't I, <laughs> why didn't I learn this? I like, yes. You look at judo and you assume, you kind of superimpose anything you see that looks like judo. Yeah. You superimpose those ideas onto it. And it's like, no, no, this is totally different. Even though the movements look the same. It's like I can hip throw you land you on your back or I can hip throw you to land you on your head which looks yeah. almost identical but when someone's doing
0: it to you it's completely different <laughs> yeah like we, we do have in, in um, the art of arms that I practice from the 15th century we have a throw where you basically throw somebody onto their back but when you do it properly according to the text mm-hmm. you're actually getting them vertical and dropping them on the back of the head or their shoulder yeah right which is not the same thing at all
1: yeah <laughs> right? yeah and it's uh, it's frustrating almost. sometimes you do get like these sort of uh, you know hyper MMA you know fans going, oh that tr- there's no point learning traditional arts because they don't work in MMA. and I'm like, you're missing so much knowledge because uh, even just police yeah. like the stuff they could learn is not going to be the same that you'd learn in MMA. It, it was no. just a different you know
0: Well because MMA L- again, it's adapted to being a sort of gladiatorial spectator sport. yeah, exactly. Right? And nothing wrong with that. Like, And Judo, the reason they pin him on the back is is because it makes for a better fight. Yeah. It makes right? it a Yeah.
1: And so, if you've got um, people that bring in money, you know, stars or whatever, you don't lose them to injury and whatnot, which, which right. I've heard at least was one of the main sort of things around the rules because back in the day, they didn't really care. And then suddenly they were like, oh, this guy he was bringing in you know tens of thousands of fans and now he died. So... They brought in all these rules to try, to try and keep the soldiers alive or whatever. Sorry, the combatants alive.
0: Yeah, and uh, there are so many of these sort of, um, I guess, incentives around how the art is created that, that if, you, if you're not aware of them, all sorts of things get taken for granted or just don't make sense. Yeah, yeah, um, pretty much. Like, you know, we have an assumption that, that um, everyone has a knife. Yeah, because everyone did right if you're carrying a sword you you also have a dagger and probably also an eating knife and yep. somebody who's wearing a chainmail shirt and a sword and a dagger is not considered to be looking for trouble they're not really armed they're just dressed to go out yeah, <laughs> <Right>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. yeah how, how, how are you going to restrain somebody like that if you don't you know if you, if they can get a hand on their dagger you could lose your femoral artery in under a second
1: yeah, it's it's the same with us. We always assume they have a dagger, and they say, "I don't, I can't speak on this," but they say in India at least, and in a lot of places, it is still like that. In that, when you get into fights, uh, machetes and daggers and stuff do come out. and the, the idea of unarmed fighting, doesn't really exist in certain places. It's quite new,
0: and yet, and honestly, it, yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me. Like we are tool using <laughs> animals. Why on earth would you not use a tool if you want to fight someone? That's like, yeah. Yeah. that's insane. That's like trying to do woodwork with your fingers.
1: This is it. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone and they said, yeah, but MMA is real fighting. And I was like, for hundreds of years, if you didn't use a knife, it wasn't even considered real fighting. It was considered a game or a sport. Because real fighting was always with weapons. There was no concept of fighting without weapons. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, true. That's that's a good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so I'm assuming that you have an interest in cutting with sharps. Correct. Yes. Yes. Is that yeah. is that part of the martial arts you practice?
1: Yeah, though traditionally they practice on um, a cane and obviously they, you know, when they're cooking meat and whatever, they practice on animals uh, when they're preparing them. Um, but in our art specifically, we don't have like a replacement. So you know, I don't. Know, I guess I guess over here, a lot of people buy tatami mats and stuff like that. Yeah. You can try and buy sugarcane to cut yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be um, in debt pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah. You you can't get, you can't get green
0: sugar cane in in Britain very easily.
1: Yeah. If you can, it's expensive. Yeah, exactly. So I did, I did try some Tamashigiri, like the tatami mats and Mm. bottles and newspaper. And it was mostly fine. It was just the prep that used to kill me because, you know, I work full time. I teach classes. I'm trying to do my my business stuff on the side. And obviously the, the creative exercise stuff on the side. Um, and, yeah, just spending four hours or whatever it was trying to prep these mats to get
0: an hour worth of training. It was just like, oh. I I used to uh, run cutting seminars, and we would use Um yeah. And what I would do is I would get the students to show up the day before or two days before the seminar for a mat preparation session after class. And they would do it all. And then, they, then they would go into the tubs to soak, and then like two days later, they're ready, and we have a cutting seminar. And so, yeah, I I didn't do it myself. I got I got the students to do it. All. Yeah, you're lucky. You're pretty lucky. <laughs> you got them to clear up as well all the little bits. Oh that well, of mind. course. <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> on. That's <Of course. laughs> <I laughs> <mean>, some <laughs> perks to be <being> the instructor. <laughs> I had, I,
1: had um, I tried clay once. That was probably the yeah. worst because I'd done it indoors, thinking, oh, if I put some sheets down and stuff, it'll be fine. Uh, you end up finding clay like in the randomest places. Yeah. There's little a bits of clay, it fly like, everywhere. Yeah, just fly everywhere. And it's just like, I found like months later, I was still finding bits of clay on things. And I was like, where
0: the hell,
1: how did it get like, you know, four meters over there? I'm sure I just cut it. Yeah, I think. But, um, yeah. And that's kind of what led to me creating the Tamashigiri trainer. Cause I was just like, I need to get good at this. And, um, I need to find a way to do
0: it efficiently. And, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so tell us about this Tamashigiri trainer. What exactly is it? So, the Tamashigiri trainer, it's a device that you
1: clip onto your sword and it projects two lasers, so one that's perpendicular sort of in front of the edge of your blade and one mm-hmm. slightly in front of that. And that way when you move the sword, sorry, so there's a target, like a target that reacts to these lasers, and when you swing the sword towards the target, you get lines left on the target that tell you whether your sword was kept straight during the cut, which is essentially most of the, you know, the most difficult part
0: training in there. so basically it gives you a visual reference to tell you about your edge alignment yeah you said
1: that way better than i did
0: i wish i feel free to you know, you know yeah. copy and paste it out of the transcription and I'll use it that. in your marketing materials that's fine I-, I told you i
1: do tend to ramble <laughs> i find it hard to like cut sentences down. but um yeah um, so you get visual reference for your edge alignment man that was so much better
0: um yeah, so, okay, so you, so you hang you hang this sort of white screen thing on the wall and you sort of swing your sword at it without touching it and the lasers... Uh, so do, do the lines persist on the target after the sword has passed or through? For a few seconds, for a few seconds, so they kind of fade. Ah, okay, because I, I was looking at your Indiegogo campaign for this and I was thinking, well, that looks interesting, but I don't really get... How that's going to be helpful because you're just like putting a, you know, because basically if, if the laser, if you just have like a white screen and you, you pass the sort of blink safe laser across it, it just makes a very brief line and is gone as fast as your sword stroke is gone. So you, you found some way of making the laser. Do some kind of reaction in the target, so the line persists long enough that you can actually see it after the sword blow.
1: Exactly. So, um, it's now, just if photo- I may say so, that is fucking clever. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, I didn't. Well, I did come up with it for swords, but I actually saw it online. I was looking for like various things to um, practice training with. Didn't find anything, and then randomly there was a guy on YouTube using a um, ultraviolet laser to write on some photoluminescent, like, glow-in-the-dark plastic or something. Right, and I was like, "Oh, that could that persist for quite long." I was, then I thought, "Ah, if I could somehow figure out a way to use it with a sword, I could get accurate information about you know my aim angle and all that yeah. kind of stuff just using two lasers." And um, yeah, I had the idea. Um, I did study engineering previously and technical drawing and stuff, but then I, I took a course on technical uh, design using three D software, bought a three D printer, and within I think about two or three weeks, I had a prototype and was mucking around with it, and I was like this is perfect. Like it's kind of solved the issue because now I can do like two, three hours practice before going to bed or just while I'm, you know, listening to an audio book or something and get those movement patterns sort of set in stone rather than doing a few hours of cutting and then going away and practicing and not knowing whether you're right or wrong and coming back a week later. Because even if you do have space and time and money, it's just a lot of effort. (laughs) It's just so much effort to like stand out and set it up and whatever. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there's,
0: a lot of motion there's, motion there's force feedback from a target that you're not getting with this thing. There but, is. But edge alignment takes care of most of that.
1: I was going to say, if your edge alignment is good, I mean, you know, obviously you ran mm-hmm. seminars, you generally don't feel that much resistance, at least not on top. So t- you t- t- should t- Yeah. Yeah. You should, it should feel quite, feel a little bit of a thud, but it's not like, you have to force the weapon through or No, no at all. And if you're using anything else, like bottles or what a lot of people use, you don't really feel anything at all. You just kind of go straight through. Yeah. And you don't notice it at all. So, yeah. I mean, you do, you do lose out on force feedback, but even when you are practicing, the force feedback isn't necessarily helpful in, you know, the corrective exercise sense in that you get force feedback for a microsecond. Whereas if yeah. we train people to do squats, for example – You'll put them on a stability board, um, that basically wobbles as they go down, which gives mm-hmm. them feedback through the entire movement on the way yeah. down and on the way up. And that's how they get better at doing a squat. You give someone a split second of feedback and walk away and then give them a split second again. It's not really the same thing.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> just, yeah.
1: that's a good point. Yeah, that's it. So whether you're coaching or using a device or anything, generally one of the concepts in corrective exercise is you can't really teach someone to do something in the same way that you can't, um, force a horse to drink water so you can bring a uh, horse to water but you can't force it to drink um you have to create a context in which the you get enough feedback that they start correcting it themselves exactly
0: and that's it. yeah and that's exactly. It. I, I'm literally i'm in the process of producing an online course about how to teach martial arts because and most of m- most historical martial arts are taught by people with no kind of pedagogical training at all right yeah and The model I use for how to teach is how children learn to walk, right? You don't sit a child down and give them a half-hour lecture on kinematics and physiology and anatomy and posture and all of that crap. What happens is the child sees what they want to do, they have a goal, Mm -hmm. and they have a model to copy other people walking around. And they go, I want to do that. And they start trying to get themselves onto their feet. And gravity is providing continuous, absolutely consistent feedback all the time. And every time they make a mistake, they fall over. And every time they get it right, they get to walk a bit before they make a mistake and fall over. And eventually, pretty damn quickly, given how complex walking is, it's, in, it's an incredibly complicated phenomenon. Um, but really quickly, these tiny little children learn to walk, right? Yeah. And that's it. It's so our job as instructors is to create the environment and the feedback mechanism. So we, the student has a goal of learning to do swords. So you give them a model of how to do it and a feedback mechanism which tells them in real time, immediately, whether they're getting it right or not. Which in our case is if they, if they're getting it right according to their level, then they hit you and don't get hit. And if they get it wrong, they fail to hit you and they get hit. And it's immediate and it's, it doesn't require explanation. It's just exactly. you got hit or you didn't. Exactly. Um, and yeah, that's that's exactly it. That is, it's actually how I teach a lot of uh,
1: form and stuff. I mean, because mm-hmm. I don't I do kung fu for a little bit, and you know you have to do carters, and obviously Wing Chun, you have to do carters and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I personally hate that training. I don't. I mean, I don't hate that training for the wrong way like to say it. I hate using that to teach beginners because I always find. Right. Learning it in isolation. It's like trying to integrate an entire movement without learning how it feels under pressure first. Right. So what happens, you learn the form, then you try it under pressure, and it completely falls apart. And it's like, well, if you only pressure test it at the end, then that's going to happen. So instead, what I tend to do is I set up grappling exercises where the objective is just to push the person back. And just physics-wise and you know biomechanics-wise if you can't push the person back, you haven't got the right form. Your legs are in the wrong position, your shoulders in the wrong position, your back's in the wrong position. And when you start getting really good at it, without my input, then I start saying, okay, you can make this better by doing this. And then once you finally got it, then I say, now here's a form that you can practice. Otherwise, if I gave you the form first, it would confuse you. You'd just be like, I have no idea why I'm doing this. And you get lost. Absolutely.
0: Um, I I use forms, I mean, in the syllabuses that I create for teaching the historical arts I teach, um, we very often have forms. Um, but the way I teach it is, I mean, because most forms are basically a sequence of techniques, right? Yeah. So we do the technique first and they practice the technique in various ways. And then they take one half of the technique and they do that on their own to improve their ability to do the technique with a partner, right? Because yeah. with a partner, you have to be careful and not hurt your training partner. But if you if your training partner is imaginary, you can go as hard and as fast as you like and not worry about it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and then they use that solo practice to improve their um, performance of the pair exercise. And then what we do is we take a whole bunch of those solo halves of a, of, of techniques and they're strung together into a form. But each step is taught as a pair drill first. And then we have what's called the syllabus form applications drill, which is, um, like you start in the middle and you have maybe two or three friends whose job is to give you the right feed from the right direction at the right time. So you just do the form and, but each time you're moving your sword, you're doing it in the context of a, of a yeah, in context training of pressure, exercise. Sort of yeah. Pressure, some sort of feedback, some sort yeah. of uh,
1: input that you can. Yeah. Make. Cause otherwise
0: oh, just, just form on its, on its own is pointless. Yeah.
1: And then what you find is people try and shoehorn the form into situations, which can work. Um, it's just, it could be working in wrong ways, you know what I mean (laughs) sometimes you can get things to work but that's not really how it's intended to be used which isn't bad in itself but um, it can lead to like cascades of problems down the line because especially if it's a fundamental movement um, yeah, it's it's going to cause problems so uh, yeah, that's how I teach it as well, I'll teach little pieces of it, then I'll sort of say play with it, then I'll add pieces on slowly slowly, and eventually you can do we don't have like set forms in just a video. We actually have um, it's kind of like freestyle forms and the idea mm-hmm. is that your teacher will mark you on how many times you repeat yourself, how comfortable you look doing those movements, etc cetera, etc cetera. because they say um, their sort of philosophy is that if you learn to do a specific response, then you become predictable when your ability yeah. to act on the fly kind of um, suffers whereas it should be. Kind of like dance, I guess freestyle dance. The best dancers aren't the guys that learn a routine and just do it. It's the guys where you can just put on music and they dance amazingly, perfect technique without any instruction and just without memory, without them using their memory essentially. Yeah, and it's just, different every time. Yeah, and it's different every time. In fact, I remember one time my teacher put me in a lock once, and um, he said, "See that lock? He hasn't done it in like for four or five years, but the opportunity presented itself, and he didn't think about doing it. You just kind of do it because your body knows how to." cause yeah. someone else pain kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. So get, getting back to the, the Tamashigiri trainer, that's kind of what I was aiming for. I was like, I just need something that can give me constant feedback that I can practice all the time. And it's immediate. Yeah. And it's immediate. It's not like I have to cut, look at the target and go, did I scoop? When did I scoop? Did I scoop down? Did I scoop up? Sometimes it's not even that easy to tell because, you know, you could be um, changing in elevation rather than actually twitch- twisting. And that can cause things to twist in that rather than my hand yeah. just straight, you know, slipping up or going down. And, um, yes, yeah, so it's been really, really helpful just for my own trainer. Uh, at which point I showed to one of my friends and they were like, dude, you have to put this out there. This is like, this
0: is yeah. great." <laughs> so, so, um, have you yet had the experience of teaching a student, like getting a student to cut tatami or whatever, and then getting him to go away and train with this device for a bit and then come back and test on that the tatami. Have you done that yet? I haven't yet. I haven't. Not I've yet, done okay. once, Once, like someone
1: just trying it out and yeah. then left it with them. They kind of got addicted after a while. I didn't ask sure. them to do it. <laughs> and they just, yeah. uh, after a while, they got pretty good. And I was like, that didn't take long at all. I was thinking, I didn't like, when I first got it, specifically the cut, I don't know what you guys would call it, but say the sword is in your right hand. You go from yeah. the bottom right to the top left. I yeah. found that. Yeah, that cut's really, really uh, awkward, I guess. And I didn't even realize how badly I was doing it until I used the thing. And then I corrected ah. it. But I was, it was quite cool to see someone that had never done any swordsmanship. They were just at my house. They were like, oh, let me try. Let me play around with it. And I was like, yeah, go for it. And quite quickly, they got addicted. <laughs> and then they they started getting pretty good on some of the cuts. And I was like, dude, they're like, Doing that pretty well. (laughs) you've never done any swordsmanship before, which is again kind of goes back to what we were saying—that constant feedback.
0: ah, Am I right in thinking that at the moment um, it's it's just on one edge? So if you have a if you have a two edge sword and you want to practice cutting with the the back edge, you just turn the sword around and and do it that way. No, you can still do it with the back edge. All it is is
1: essentially it's just two lasers. So. As long as um, they're collinear, you know the sword is moving in a straight line. If they're not collinear, it's not moving in a straight line. So whether the sword's upside down, left, right, wherever, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. The only thing is, if you're using it backwards, uh, and you're going to go from one cut and quickly go to another cut, because the trailing laser is going to be, you know, it's quite far behind um, the edge laser, if you like, with that. You might if you just wanted to practice that technique, I'd say practice that whole movement and like finish it. Don't like cut it short and go onto another one. And then once you're once you know you've got it, then change. Or obviously flip the um, laser thing around. You could do that. But personally that's just I find that
0: kind of wrong. Or you could maybe fit two onto your sword, one the true edge, one on the back edge. You could that's expensive though <laughs> I don't know <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, here I am trying to get a use case for people to go and buy two instead of just one and you're like oh no that's them. not <laughs>
1: well, I'm trying to help them save money but uh,
0: no you could definitely do that if you, if, if you didn't yeah. so pocket. at what stage of production you're in are you in so we've
1: finished the prototype um, we've got like some units that we've sent out we wanted mm-hmm. to send out a bunch more but we had an issue with the um, PCB because of the design what a design what is what is the PCB uh, the um, printed circuit board, the circuit board.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, there was an issue where it was supplying more voltage to the, to the lasers than it should have because mm-hmm. I asked the designer to make it limit at 10 volts and they made it 11.5 or something like that. And it blew a bunch of our laser components. But anyway, right. so we've got, yeah. we got our prototypes um, uh, and we're now working with a company in the US to finalize an industrial design which can be sent off to manufacturers to sort of mass-produce. Uh, okay. It's been designed with industrial uh, manufacture in mind already, but this
0: is yeah. more like putting the final touches on it. Uh, you know. Be, uh, so, do you, do you have a background in industrial design?
1: Um, I studied manufacturing at school, and I studied engineering, but I don't have a background in manufacturing. Uh, like, in, since I've been working, essentially working, I've been working on the railway. So, how do you mean? I work on the railway doing inspection mainly, and maintenance, and.
0: Oh, really, okay. Stuff like that. So, right, so I just assumed that this was your full time job. I didn't realize you actually had a proper job on top of all this.
1: No, no, I've got a proper job. I do, I do a nine to five or eight to four, and then I do this stuff in the evening as well as my classes, as well as my one to ones and stuff. So, yeah. Okay. So, you can see why, why, why rolling mats and stuff would be a real pain to me. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was a massive pain. So, is is this your first product? Um,. I've got some other products, but this is the first one I'm doing seriously and taking it to market on like mass scale. But I've designed okay. like a bunch of other stuff in my own time.
0: Just Anything own. you want to tell us about, or is it all secret? Um, I'll keep. It's gym. I'm,
1: I'm designing some gym equipment that's designed to correct a lot of different uh, ailments that people have, and a lot of different uh, movement. Uh, what do you call it? forget the word now. Um, movement patterns? Movement essentially. Movement okay. patterns. Dysfunctional movement patterns. I forget. There's a, there's a proper term for it. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm designing, like, a bunch of gym equipment. That's going to be, like, my second venture. If this Okay. Does, well, even if this doesn't do okay, I'll probably do that next.
0: All oh, right. And how is your campaign going? Um, pretty good. I think at the moment we're nearly at 30,000
1: US. Or okay. 5,000 uh, pounds. And... Yeah, really happy with it so far. It's yeah. actually doing a lot better than I thought. We kind of launched it maybe a little bit too early because okay. we did it thinking, oh, a few people will see it and, you know, we'll have time to sort of um, smooth over the rough edges, like make sure the copy and stuff is right. And then like the first few days, it went out. Obviously, Matt Easton, he got to test it out quite early and then he shared it on his page. Immediately, ah. we had like a flood of people and we were like, oh, shoot, we got to rush around now and make <laughs> sure it's like proper because... Um, yeah, we just didn't didn't expect such a quick response and such a you know a good response. So quite happy with that.
0: No, that's great. Um, what um, what made you decide to put your weight behind this particular project? Um, just from experience, um,
1: I know that if you're not passionate about something and it's killing you, it's like you got to put a lot of hours into it. Yeah, you'll start to burn out quite quickly. Whereas mm-hmm. martial arts is something. I do for fun anyway, I do sometimes I do martial arts to relax, like I put on the TV, I will just practice martial arts, so a project that was directly related to my passion, um, and things that I do for fun, I knew that I wouldn't burn out too quickly, I knew that I'd have a lot of uh,
0: steam, a lot of fuel in the tank if you like, to make sure I get it to the end, finish line. Okay, and um, how far away are you from actually getting
1: it into production? Hopefully, this is just an estimation that most manufacturers give you. They say six months from mm-hmm. sort of design to manufacturing. So we started in June with this company, and we're hoping to be ready in
0: um, by December. But okay. um, you know, that's fingers crossed. That's like best case scenario. Sure. Okay. And are you going to getting it manufactured in China or I, in I'm UK? Not certain. Or? I'm not saying. Okay. I imagine we'll manufacture in the US only because the US is uh,
1: the biggest market, or at least sure. Maybe it's manufactured in some parts are manufactured in China. So maybe some components will come from China and maybe assembled in the U.S. But I know from speaking with the manufacturers that because of the whole China-U.S. trade thing at the moment and a bunch of other stuff going on in terms of trade, sometimes the shipping costs can kill you. Even if it's cheaper to manufacture in China, you end up paying insane amounts just to get it to where you want it to be. So, yeah. Our Our biggest market is probably the U.S. After that, the EU. So... Like I'm, I make about eighty
0: percent of my income um, from US sales of books and courses. Yeah, yeah. so I, if that's like sword central, United States. Yeah, sword, guns, weapons in general.
1: To be honest, yeah, yeah it's uh, part of their culture. I think.
0: Okay, so I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious because, all right, I've I've produced various projects, and one of the more sort of outside of my usual comfort zone was a card game, which accurately models a um, my interpretation of this 15th century uh, Italian knightly combat oh, book cool. that I was talking about earlier. Right. So if you play the game, you can reproduce the sword fight in the game in real life without any logic problems. Right. Okay. It, it, it cool. tracks absolutely accurately. And more often than not, you can actually point to the exact bit in the book where you have just done the thing that was said in the book. Yeah,
1: right? yeah, yeah,
0: So it's like really sort of nerdy and specific and it has no... In, you know, the general why? public doesn't care. Why should they care? But for a few people, it's like this is just like the best card game ever, right? But The thing is, the most common response I got other than, oh, that's a cool idea from my of people was... Oh, that's a cool! Idea. I had that same idea myself, but they've never <laughs> yeah. actually done it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and it's it's getting you know ideas are cheap, and you know anybody can have an idea to produce. I don't know a tamagoyaki trainer like that, for instance. But it's it's getting it from this is a cool idea to this is actually a working prototype to this is actually a product people can go exactly. and buy. Exactly. That's the hard bit. Exactly, and and that's that's the advice I really give. I talk
1: or the the what would you say topic I talk about a lot when people ask me about business and doing things because I've tried a few different things. I have done like some game design. I like started working on a book. I haven't finished yet, but um, I'm well aware of the like running out of steam thing and the yeah ideas are cheap. And I'd say you, you know anyone could come up with it. And I had a few comments myself. You know, people saying, "Oh, I came up with something like this." i'm like yeah but that's really easy (laughs) (laughs) that's the easy bit (laughs) harder not not even doing it sometimes it could be simple tasks like replying to emails but when you've given up so much mental real estate to it and you're uh, burnt out essentially from other stuff simple tasks start becoming difficult and uh, yeah that's why you need that sort of like every time i've got a new revision on this or fixed a problem it's like a massive sort of refuel it's like Energized again because then I get to use it and I get to play with it and I go, ah, oh, this is so much better and yeah, just the whole process has been super fun for me. So it's it's been a really good project to put a lot of um,
0: time. In. And I think one thing I I took, I mean, Temashigiri is a Japanese word meaning like test cutting basically, test cutting, yeah. right? Um, and obviously in your video for on your um, on your crowdfunding campaign, you have like a katana being used for this thing because it's a Japanese, Japanese sword makes sense. Yeah, but, yeah. but, 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 you also have other swords and European swords particularly. So I was like, okay. Um, so I'm, firstly, I was really pleased to see something that's obviously aimed at the martial arts sword market in general, not historical martial arts in particular. Yeah. Um, but, see something aimed at that market that explicitly includes the historical arts that I practice. That's actually pretty unusual.
1: Well, when I, when I, um, for ages, I was trying to think of a name for it and I was going for like, you know, the obvious stuff, cut trainer, sword trainer, um, all this kind of stuff and just results I'd get on Google were so wild. And when I was actually looking up cutting competitions, I found that, um, guys that do Japanese martial arts and Hima arts, particularly Longsword and Saber, as mm-hmm. well as um, uh, the Hungarian guys. I forget. Yeah, I, I think it's Hungarian Saber. One of those, I found that they cut the best. And I was yeah. like, I have to I have to include these guys. Yeah, <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, you they're, do. You know, they're, they're <laughs> um, the best. And also just in terms of searching terms, when you start talking about sword cutting, Tamashigiri comes up quite a lot. And some Hema yeah. guys even still call it Tamashigiri, like, if you're using the Tami Mats, you know, I've heard yeah. people just, they're doing time they're doing kind. They're doing so I thought, oh, it'd be a good name to use as it, um, you know, encapsulates a lot of different arts, I think, at least. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's, 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 it struck me quite particularly that you're explicitly including the historical martial arts, um, which again, okay, it's, it's unusual for people who don't practice them themselves. We tend yeah. to get in the larger martial arts, world we tend to get kind of forgotten and ignored
1: no actually, i really like the HEMA community i think it's one of the most uh exciting sort of martial arts communities because you've got, I, I feel like there's there's free communities there's the sports guys and everything is pretty much established and there's you know there's not a lot of new stuff happening if you like mm-hmm. apart from you know new competitions and whatnot then you've got the traditional guys which are on the opposite end super traditional where they don't want to change anything and everything has to be done this way and that way and um great you know there's a lot of depth and a lot of information there but the HEMA guys they're so ready to test things and try things and let's do this format do that format let's do melee yeah. games and you know maybe we're, re- inter- we're interpreting this wrong and let's look at the body mechanics and etc whereas yeah I just find that in general super interesting because you go into some clubs and it's like no this is the way it's taught this is the way you practice this is it and this yeah. is what you are going be doing for the next 20 years or whatever whereas I've taught at fight um, camp and skirmish for okay. the last five years I think and, ah, so everybody. that's how you, that's how you know Matt Easton. Yeah, this is how I know Matt Easton. So, right. and, uh, Lindy Beige. Um, and yeah, you just meet loads of people and you go to different classes and there's all these different contexts. It's like, mm. I think I went to one where they were doing fighting on a ship because ships yeah. sway and things like that. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And you just don't get that amount of, um, creativity and stuff in some arts, at least, at least in the arts that I've practiced. You might do, but I'm unaware. But I find the HEMA community just, cool man very cool <laughs> very, very passionate okay. people very passionate very uh, you know ready to try things and yeah
0: well, speaking I, of trying things um, okay you've got these ideas for gym equipment that you're not going to talk about in detail right now because they're not ready to be talked about I understand um, but yeah. what would you say so far is the best idea that you have not acted on best idea that I have not acted on that's
1: I remember seeing this question and thinking I should get back to this and think about something. <laughs> <laughs> the best idea I've not acted on. That is a tough one.
0: Well, I mean, take a minute. I, and I, can, edit. I can edit a- the awkward pause out of the out of voice.
1: Uh, <laughs> so I, I do actually have a, uh, an idea for a game. Um, okay. That I was kind of like tossing up. I wasn't sure if I should do this or do that. And it's essentially a similar sort of, Concept is yours in that you want to take mm-hmm. real fighting elements and make them into, you know, just something enjoyable a game. Whereas mine was an app that was essentially a rhythm, a rhythm app where, you know, you know what rhythm, rhythm game is? Like a no. dance, dance revolution or? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like these kind of things, but it, you know, you're fighting and it was like a tempo thing. So you had to select the right moves at the right time in, in the same way that you would in any sort of beat em up game. But it was very specifically like you have to recognise what the person's doing and where they're going, and you have to react with the right sequence in time, not just hold down that, block, whatever. That like is you a you and you die <laughs> sort
0: of thing. That that is a good idea. Would you do that as a keyboard game or with some kind of controller? Um, either or, to be honest, if it would make more of, sense to me as like you know Beat Saber where you've got a controller yeah, in each yeah. hand, and you're, it would make sense to me to do it do it that kind of model because then people There's, are actually I, getting up and moving around i've
1: actually got a few different formats i had like a, an idea of an app I had an idea of if i could do it fully in 3d I had an idea if i could do it in you know side by side what do you call it like 2d fighter kind of thing mm-hmm. if i just thought as a concept it'd be really addictive and cool and it kind of reminded me of shasta video and like the way that it's taught it's like we're not going to have an exchange we're not going to have a duel it's like you're going to run at this guy. You have one opportunity to make it, get it right. And if you get it right, you kill him. If you don't, you die kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, that seems more accurate for, um, swords and stuff. And, uh, even though I used to love fighting games, I used to love Tekken and Street Fighter and Soul Calibur. Me and my brother used to like play them all the time. But you find that there's, um, yeah, there's like, you can find like te- cheap tactics and stuff like that to win. And there's a lot of, uh, pros that kind of, they've hacked they understand the game so well that's not even so much about their skill anymore. It's that they understand these combos that can wipe your yeah. life out in like, you know, immediately you can't do anything about it. Whereas this is more, you know, anyone can pick it up. And if your rhythm and timing is good, and you're good at identifying what the opponent's doing. You can beat someone that may have more experience than you, at least in theory, in theory. I mean, obviously it's going to be some, um, mm. whatever. But yeah, I gave that one. A lot of, that's an idea that I still want to develop at some point. Maybe someone will listen to this and try and develop it. And, I'll still be happy because I'll get to play it, but um, that, that's yeah. going to take a
0: lot of money. Yeah, exactly. It's going to take a big investment, so that's why I didn't sort. Of go uh, I've minute. been a little bit involved on the edges of, of developing um, a sword-based computer game, and just the amounts of money involved are insane.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've done it. I actually developed a motorcycle game.
0: Oh really? Uh, well,
1: I developed it to a certain level. And then I kind of said, you know, this is going to, this is taking too much of my money. <laughs> <So> <laughs> okay. I just got, but um, yeah, that was, a, that was another sort of cool idea that I wish I had the money to pursue. I just needed to
0: be born in a rich family. This is what, this is what I really need. Do you know, do you know what? Like the, the number one um, sort of predictive thing, if, if a young entrepreneur makes loads of money, it's, it's almost invariably because, they come from loads of money, and so they had no trouble finding the, I don't know, 100,000 or half million or two million or whatever that they needed to get started. And then, you know, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, it's, also, it's much easier to make like the 10th million than it is to make the first one. Yeah. And also, the kind of like less spoken about bit, that um,
1: morale or that drive, it's not as easy to have if you might be homeless, if you mess up. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> You know that you can always fall back on um, you know, your parents' house or whatever, or you know that the money isn't even really yours to begin with. Yeah, yeah your drive that, to do it is gonna be way more than someone that's barely making ends meet, which is um something. Yeah, that doesn't you,
0: you basically you can afford to take creative risks. Yeah. If if they're not gonna cost you your children's home.
1: Yeah, and and losing, yeah. I don't know, whatever it is, tens of thousands of pounds doesn't feel like, you know, 10 years of work to you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, it would be my pocket money for the weekend. Anyway, I would have spent that on a car. Like, so it did yeah. that, that element. Actually,
0: one of the, one of the best things I ever did to improve my own entrepreneurial ability was when I moved to Finland, um, you know, I'd grown up with pounds and pounds were real money. And I moved to Finland, which was using the mark back then. And then they switched to the Euro and, it was still money, but it didn't feel like real money. I know exactly, right? what, you I know exactly <laughs> which meant, what you mean. Which meant that I could make sensible business decisions based on the numbers without having any kind of emotional attachment to it as money with actual sort of special value.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. And then I lived in Finland so long that when I moved back to the UK in 2016, right, Pounds had lost their, this is real money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just another currency that I was used to making sensible decisions about. And yeah, it just separates, it separates the, that kind of emotional attachment to the money. And that so, makes yeah. makes it easy to like invest in things like getting a decent web designer to build you a proper website. Because the money you're spending is a perfectly sensible business expense but that's, it's hard to spend that much money on something when you've never If it. Feel, yeah, if it feels like real money.
1: Yeah. I have the same experience, except a negative one, in that I went to Ibiza on holiday and we rolled oh, yeah. our money out in cash. And you know, the euros, I don't know, it kind yeah. of felt like Monopoly money. I was like, this isn't it, even real. Yeah. And you just end up spending it like it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's real. Yeah. So you're just you know, buying food and renting beach t- uh, deck chairs and all that kind of stuff. And- yeah. Yeah, but I, I know that exact feeling where you just spend it and you don't think about it in the same way, at least.
0: I think. Yeah. Would... And, and, yes, and it, it can lead to profligacy, but, but in my case, <laughs> it, it led to, um, it led to the, the internal ability to make reasonable, to take rational. reasonable business risks. Yeah. Uh, um, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. rational
1: um, No, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I'll get there eventually. I'm still at the every time I I spend a few thousand pounds,
0: it hurts me. (laughs) 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 Well, yeah, it does. (laughs) But, you know, um, if you're spending it on things like industrial designers to get your prototypes, whatever, into production, then it's money you have to spend. Exactly, exactly.
1: Excellent. I think um, now that the campaign is going well, I'm much more, um, I don't know, comfortable. Like a couple months ago. I was like, please, like, let this go, okay? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm uh, not far away from being properly broke, like real broke. <laughs>
0: yeah. okay. I think I think it's only fair to the listeners if we mention the inescapable fact of backing any crowdfunding campaign that there is always a risk that something will happen and the product doesn't actually get into production or doesn't get distributed or whatever. Like a factory could burn down. Or it's not it's not like you're sitting on a big part of these things and when people buy them on the crowdfunding campaign you just send them out. It's like they're they're backing the campaign so that you can get this into production, so that they can be produced and distributed. And there are there are risks along the way that are not the same as just ordering a product that's already been produced. Of course, of course. I mean we all sort of
1: we hope that everything's going to go fine, but there's yeah. always a chance that something doesn't. And um,
0: back me, trust me, please. <laughs> I'll, try yeah, well, and, I'll try my best. i my best. And 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 it's 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 tricky because you know you have to when doing a crowdfunding campaign, you have to set the price of the thing that you're selling at a level where you can actually make money when people buy it at that price. Yes. And, but it's almost impossible to know for certain how much it's going to cost to actually produce it. Yeah. This, this is a
1: part I was actually struggling with. Um, I don't know if anyone's out there. Maybe they could reach out and they could, uh, shed some light on it because normally when you sell something, um, at least as far as I understand, you might have had investment elsewhere. People have invested in the business or like a share and blah, blah, blah. Whereas with a crowd fund, you have to set the price, um, not just for the profit of the thing, but for the development costs as well. Yeah. So it's not like I've, um yeah, as you say, it's not like I'm sitting on them and I'm just going to ship them out. It's like every little bit of profit that we might make is going directly into um, manufacturing, design, marketing, up the shop, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've kind of based the price on uh, similar devices on the market and the price of the components and stuff like that. Um. Hopefully it should be fine. And I'm like, (laughs) what I've worked out so far.
0: The thing is that you have working prototypes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have working prototypes. And I have um, spoke to the manufacturers and stuff, and they think the pricing sounds, like, reasonable.
0: And Um, am I right in thinking that you produced your first prototypes with a 3D printer and components that can be bought off the shelf? Yeah. Right, okay. So I have a a thought for you, okay? Your absolute worst-case scenario, let's say – Something disastrous happens and it, you know, the product never actually, the people who back the campaign never actually get the product, which is a small but real risk that's always the case with crowdfunding campaigns. Okay. Yeah. Here's a thought. You will, you will be able to send them the um, print the files details. for the 3D printer yeah, yeah. and a list of components that they can go and get. And so at least they can assemble one for, for a small additional cost. So there's yeah. actually, you have that, you have that, um, safety that, net. that safety net thing so that even if the worst case scenario happens, then um, people will have the capability to go to their local makerspace or whatever and put one together yeah. with yeah. the materials you provide.
1: The funny thing is I actually have a friend who's also uh, into engineering and he was buying one and he said, he actually messaged me. He's like, dude, I can't wait. So like, how did you make your first one? And I'd basically done. I didn't like give him a list or an STL file or anything like that because he wanted to do it himself. But I just told him what he'd need, and uh, yeah, he went off and done the same thing. <laughs> Funny enough, <it> was, <laughs> right, uh, go. sort of bootleg one. Just while, while I wait for the one, for the real one to come out, and hopefully the the actual prospect of owning not just the device, but you know, the travel pack, and you've got the safety glasses. And you know, it's been tested, and you know, it's got a really nice. We've got a video coming out soon that's me doing an unboxing of it.
0: Oh right. The target is so hang up. It's quite like nice, just generally. Um, I mean, yeah, looking at the campaign, your production values are pretty damn high. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. A friend of mine done the videos, um, but he's worked
1: in advertising for years and stuff. Clearly. And, <laughs>
0: because they're very well done.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people have said that. Some people have said like, oh, did you, um, are you working with like a whole team? And I was like, no, it's just, just my mate, Alex. He's you know, pretty good at what he does. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, and he's been um, sort of giving me, um, he's like the creative director for the company, essentially. So right. he, he kind of looks at all the things I produce and goes, maybe you should go in this direction. Maybe you should go in that direction. Maybe you should change the wording. I'm trying to get him to go on camera. I told him the next time we make a video, I'm not doing it. I'm like, you're doing it because uh, it's, it's a lot of pressure. But um, yeah, we've we've, uh, done pretty well so far.
0: Excellent. Well, I I, I wish you luck with the, uh, with finishing up the campaign and getting the product into your backers hands. Um, It will. I will. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, you, you did the right thing in that you got the prototype done before you launched the campaign. I did the same thing with my game, right? Who knows? I, I have no chops in the game world. So we went to, I launched my campaign for my game when we had a working prototype so the game could be played and sample artwork and all of the money was going to producing the kind of the print files and getting the printing done. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it was, it was kind of, it was realistic to assume that given the money, I could actually finish the job because the hard part was already done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it it seems to me like you've already done the hard bit, which is getting the design right. Hopefully, hopefully
1: I've spoken to the manufacturers. They're happy with all the stuff I've done. They think the pricing point is sensible based on the components and everything. But as you say, you never know what can happen. <laughs> so I'm just, just hoping that I've done it all good. Um, I'm sure there's probably like a, a bona fide way route to do it, to, uh, I guess, to set the price and whatnot. But um, I think I've been fair, quite fair. I compared it to things yeah. like, like seen dry firing systems. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you've got the dry firing laser systems, which I found out about afterwards. And some of them use similar sort of technology. They'll use a laser and some sort of target and, a way of registering it, hitting the target and um yeah I've kind of gone against that and the prices I've found.
0: Yeah it's, it seems reasonable to me and um, comparing the price to what it costs to set up as a tatami cutting session is a
1: yeah, yeah, good way to do
0: it. No brainer. <laughs> well I'm I say I'm very much looking forward to trying it when <laughs> when it gets here. Are you going to be at fight camp by any chance? No.
1: Ah okay I was going to say we're going to be at fight camp with this so if anyone's in the UK and you come to the fight camp, come to fight camp. We'll have one set up that you can play around with. Um, excellent. When, when is yeah. fight camp? Fight camp is, I think it's the eighteenth, seventeenth to nineteenth of August, something like oh, okay. that. Right, okay. That
0: so, weekend. so this 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 show will have gone out before then. So, yeah, so they can look, they can look up fight camp and if necessary, come along and have a go. And yeah. excellent. But, yeah, thanks really? for having me on. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that's, the next words out of my mouth are going to be, well, thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you I felt like, <laughs> like I was holding you here a little bit. I was like, oh, I keep... No, 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 going no, 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 literally. no, no, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, thanks <laughs> for right. having me, and uh, it's been awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Asante. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, which includes links to those... Um, which includes links to the martial art that we talked about and the particular yoga style that Asante is doing, as well as pictures of his Tameshigiri training device. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash theswordguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Mila Yandreyevska about historical martial arts and business and social media stuff because uh, Mila runs a company called Audacia Creative that does sort of social media marketing presence stuff for companies that produce historical martial arts equipment and other historical martial arts related stuff. So I hired her recently. So if you've noticed that my social media presence has suddenly gotten a lot more polished, you have Mila to thank for it. Or rather, I have Mila to thank for it. You don't want to miss that conversation, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.